I count it a real honor and privilege to uh, not only worship with you this morning at our great church, but to, uh, to have the use of the pulpit and be able to preach here. I told folks earlier that when our building was under construction, I came in here three or four times and made my way up through the, the um, <clears throat> crushed stone and the concrete and uh, forms and everything and figured out about where the pulpit was, hoping and dreaming that one day Pastor Steve would be gracious and, and give me an opportunity, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Pastor. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, don't, you you got to love the facilities we got here, too. I mean, I, you didn't see the early service. They had uh, the tree leaves, you know, the autumn leaves on the screen with some of the music, and the leaves were actually fluttering. And I leaned over and asked Pastor Steve how that how they did that, and he said there's people back there with a little fan blowing the leaves. <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, you notice this time when the, the bubbles are going up, you know, I leaned over and he said, yep, there's guys with bubble blower back there. <laughs> so it's great sitting over here with the pastors. Pastor Dan, he's gone now, so I can talk a little more about him, but he's such an encourager. After the pivot choir got up and sang, he leaned over to me and said, boy, if you can't preach after that, you can't preach. So thanks for the great words of encouragement there, Dan. Really, it's, a, it's great to be with uh, all of you and you men from pivot. It's thrilling to not only uh, that you share your, your wonderful gifts with us, but uh, to recognize what God is doing in your lives. We, uh, we have a great church here. I've been privileged to live and minister in eight different states and uh, be in a lot of different churches and other countries and across America. And um, my wife, Danielle, and I are very, very grateful to be members of Black Rock Church and very grateful for this opportunity this morning. Now, all morning, I have been driven mad by that clock back there. You know, we've, we've got to, you know, empty the parking lot and all that kind of thing in between services. And I got to tell you, whether you like it or not, <clears throat> I feel a little more relaxed this time <laughs> because I don't preach again until six o'clock tonight. <laughs> I don't know what that means for you, but I'm not worn out yet. And, uh, and besides, I was supposed to be on at 12 and it's 12-12, pastor. So, you know, Got to cut me a little slack there. I got to get into the word. I, um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.14, or you'll see it up here on the screens in front of you. Um, a couple of days after Pastor Dan had asked me about uh, speaking this Sunday, my wife and I were traveling. Um, we went up to the Albany Rescue Mission in Albany, New York, and just north of there is Troy, New York, where she is born and raised, and we were traveling through Troy on, on the way to a, one of our staff members' uh, mother had passed away, and we were going to the funeral service, and as we were traveling through there, my wife was pointing out some old um, sites, uh, you know, aunt and so-and-so lived there and so on, and I caught out of the corner of my eye was a church building, and there was a road sign for their church, and it was called the Compelled Church. Now, Daniil and I had been in, in church growth movement for a number of years. We had pioneered a church in San Diego in Northern Virginia, 
and I'm always interested in how a church represents itself to the community. And so I called her attention to the church sign, the compelled church, and I sarcastically said to her, boy, I'll bet that brings the unchurched people into their doors by the droves. Um, But then I started thinking about that. Where did they get that? And I said, oh, I know where they got that. I not only know that scripture, but that's one of my life verses. It's not only underlined in my Bible, but it's reprinted in the flyleaf. I've got it taped in there, have had for years. It's got to be from 2 Corinthians 5.14, where looking at it from the New King James Version on the screen, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What compels you? Does anything compel you? Look at it from the New Living Translation, the same scripture, 514. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died for, to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Controls. Would you describe yourself as controlled by something? These verses, uh, as I mentioned, they've been underlined for years in, the, in, my script, in my Bible and reprinted in the front. The interlinear literal translation of the Greek New Testament translates 514 this way. For the love of Christ constrains us. The Greek verb that we're looking at is syneko. And in English, it simply means controls. But when you examine these different translations in the original text, we're confronted with these three English words, constrained, controlled, compelled. Are you compelled? If you are compelled, what are you compelled to do? Or are you constrained? What are you constrained from doing? Compelled and constrained. They seem like opposites, But perhaps they are more like uh, the different sides of the same coin. You see, Scripture and the people that I have known throughout 47 years of ministry experience have convinced me that God's love motivates radical change. Personally, His love has motivated and compelled me to do what I otherwise might not do, and constrain me from doing things I otherwise would do. God's love changes everything. A few years ago, I was waiting at JFK Airport with a small group of people. We were on a mission trip to Zambia, Africa. And um, some of you from our church here have gone there to the Sons of Thunder farm. And there was uh, three men that had a lot of good equipment. They looked like they were well outfitted. And as I looked at them, I said to one of my friends next to me, I said, you know, I think those guys are Christians. So I I walked over to them and I said, you guys seem so happy 
might you be followers of Jesus? And they smiled and they said, yes. One was a doctor and one was an, uh, um, an, uh, a dentist and the other was a contractor. And I inquired, why are you going to Africa? And, and they said, well, it's an annual trip, something they do together every year. And I'm thinking, great, short-term missionaries. I was wrong. They were big game hunters. And they had permits to call the elephant herd in Zimbabwe. They were in my view for another hour. And as I watched them, I thought to myself, that could have been me. Not the doctor or the dentist, because frankly, I can't even pronounce the names on my own prescriptions. But in 1973, after almost five years in rescue mission ministry, I left that and became the partner in a construction company and learned to operate heavy equipment. Daniil and I uh, built a home in the woods, and one of the things I loved about that place was from nowhere on the three acres could you see an artificial light anywhere at night. You see, in my heart, I'm a country boy. I greatly enjoy being surrounded by mountains and lakes and uh, uh, the wide open spaces. We were living in Colorado Springs before moving here to Bridgeport. Left to myself, I wouldn't be living in a city. I wouldn't be living in Bridgeport. I wouldn't be living on the busy North Avenue where I can listen to the fire trucks and the aid cars go by my house. But most people live in cities, and especially the disadvantaged. Almost 40% of the kids in Bridgeport live below the poverty lines. When I was 19, I surrendered my heart to the control of the Holy Spirit. And God's love had begun to compel me to go and do things I had been sure I wouldn't. There was a compassion for other people that was growing in my heart. Daniil will tell you that we were talking one time before we were even engaged and we were speculating about what I might do with my life and I assured her that one thing I knew is that I wouldn't be a preacher like her father. I don't know what would have happened to our budding romance if I'd have told her different because at that time she was pretty tired of living in the parsonage then. We married my senior year and while finishing college I worked at a, re, at a rescue mission and a juvenile detention facility where God's compassion for the disadvantaged started controlling my heart. Christ's love constrains me even today. When Pastor Dan asked me if I might be available on November the 1st, I thought to myself, oh no, any Sunday but November the 1st. I'm supposed to be on a, on a deer hunting trip in Northern Virginia right now with some good friends. Today, I'm constrained by his love from being in the mountains. But, and get this, I am also compelled by that love to seize the opportunity to preach. Please understand, I am not grieved by his constraint. When I was, started dating my wife, Daniil, her parents pastored a church that I was attending. And I had not put my faith in Christ. I, I was going there because my cousin who went there told me she would fix me up with the new preacher's daughter, which she successfully did. 
But I, I wasn't interested in those things. But when I embraced Christ as my Savior and then later asked the Holy Spirit to take control of my life, he began to put different interests and different desires within me. My mother-in-law, I heard her share a testimony one time and she said all the things she never wanted to do, but then she married this guy and he became a preacher and she had to do all those things and then she sat down. And I remember it was a small group. It was a pioneer church just starting and it was a small group of people. And when she got done and sat down, I go like this. I'm like, spit that out. I don't want nothing to do with that. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'll sign up for that. All the things you don't want to do, get, get right with God and he makes you do them. Yeah, that's what I want. No, thank you. Not at 17, 18, 19 years old. But you see, today I have discovered that when you allow him to fill you with his love and his love starts to work through you, you're going to love the things that he loves. And you're going to love doing things with God. Today I'm constrained from being in the mountains, but I'm also compelled to seize the opportunity to be here. I want you to understand this. To truly understand the scripture where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When you learn that, you only find real freedom in the center of his will. The freedom espoused by the world is one of Satan's greatest lies. There is nothing I would rather be doing today than preaching the eternal, everlasting word of Almighty God here at this great church. Matter of fact, if you hear later today that he died this afternoon, you please tell everybody that he left happy doing what he loved doing. He had been constrained from a hunting trip in the mountains of Virginia, but he was okay with that because he was also compelled to preach the word of God. God's love had changed him. Now, my experience is not unique. Many of you know what I speak of by your own experience. Your surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit has filled you with a love that has compelled you to places and activities you would not have naturally embraced. You also know that same love has constrained you from places and activities that would not further the good news of God's plan of reconciliation. Now some of you might be thinking like I did as a young man, I knew it, God wants to make me do what I don't want to do. I want to be free. Don't buy the enemy's lies. The freedom he sells is a myth. Ask any of these men down here who are recovering from addiction, how much freedom and joy did you find in your addiction? In your addiction? It's a lie. Selfishness is Satan's greatest trap. It is only by living in his will that we find and enjoy freedom. Remember the hunters at the airport going on safari and I was thinking that might have been me? That very time when I thought that, I looked at the team that was going to Africa, the Sons of Thunder farm with me, and I thought to myself, 
I am so grateful that I'm going to Africa to communicate with words and deeds the good news of the life-transforming Jesus rather than owning a construction company and going big game hunting with those guys. If today I had the resources to take 20 of you on a safari to Africa, I wouldn't want to do it. I'd say, hey, let's spend the money another way. Let's go to Africa, but let's rent a big tent and go to a couple of the big poor, big cities that are so full of poor people and let's tell them about Jesus Christ and let's show them how if they embrace the principles of, his God, of God's word and live for Jesus that they can, they can lift themselves out of their poverty. We see it happen at Sons of Thunder Farm every year. I know, I know young men, I knew them when they were 12 and 14 years old, came to the farm skin and bones with nothing. And now they have families and they're robust. They have their own houses. They're, they're farming. They've learned how to, to farm God's way and they're prospering. I'd rather be doing that. You and I both know many Christian believers who cannot relate to being controlled or constrained by the Holy Spirit, by the love of Christ, in the joyous acts of love that take the message of God's plan of reconciliation to others. Perhaps your own personal experience has been maybe occasional seasons of inspiration or years of dutiful duty or maybe even joyless hard work driven by fear or insecurity. What God's going to do to you if you don't. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. One translation says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. This one is, is closer to the Greek because the, the Greek word be filled comes, the Greek, what we've translated be filled comes from the Greek word, the Greek verb plero. Now you may not know this, but Greek, um, you learn to do this in seminary. Uh, Greek verbs, uh, first of all, they're in a mood. Now I know you, you say, well, sometimes I'm in a mood too. But in the Greek, the verb is in the mood, and it's an imperative mood. That simply means it's a command. It's also in the present tense. That means it's continuous action. It's also in the passive voice, and this part I especially like. And this is what I want you to capture this morning. The Greek verb, plero, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is in the passive voice. And that simply means that the that the object, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is doing the filling. And the subject of that sentence, you and me, is the one being filled. Not something we do to ourselves or for ourselves. It's something that God does when we submit, when we allow, when we invite, when we open ourselves to him. Paul believed that he was regenerated and empowered by the Holy Spirit because he had surrendered and submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit. How would you describe yourself this morning? Is God's love changing you? Is God's love compelling you? Is it constraining you, controlling you? You remember a few weeks ago, 
we had a, um, a message here about the woman at the well and Jesus' interaction with her. And Jesus told her that the water from the well would not quench her real thirst. Let me take you there, John 4.13. Jesus replied, people soon become thirsty again after drinking this water. But the water I give them takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. A few chapters later in chapter 7 of John, verse 38, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow from within. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit. You'll notice in the text, Spirit is, is, is capitalized because it's the Holy Spirit. He was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. Now some of you are thinking, you know, terms like living water and compelling love of God are attractive. But frankly, they're a bit of a mystery to me. Well, I've got good news for you this morning. Because by a simple act of faith, by an act of surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit, you can experience the compelling love of God, the compelling power of God's love. D.L. Moody worked for years and described his life as being busy carrying buckets of living water to others. I think a lot of people can relate to that. You've come to know Christ as Savior and you're so grateful what he's done and you see the needs all around you and you want to get busy doing something for God. Well, he described himself as being busy carrying a buckets of water uh, to other people, but after surrendering to the control of the Holy Spirit, he said this. He said his life was as if he himself was being carried by a great river. It's a night and day difference. One of my favorite New Testament translators is J.B. Phillips. He translates 2 Corinthians 5.14 this way. The very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. Spring of our actions. You know, our human springs soon wear out, don't they? Obstacles, loss, lack of appreciation, victimized by injustice or deceit or betrayal, disability, disease, our human spring is not what Jesus referred to when he spoke the words recorded in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Why would anyone settle for powerless living? The greatest life-changing force anywhere is God's love. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says it this way, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The most superior of all is love. The love of Almighty God. His love changes everything. And when you surrender to it, His love will change you. Paul is saying that he is compelled by that love, constrained by that love. N.T. Wright translates 2 Corinthians 5.14 this way. 
for the Messiah's love makes us press on. Then he comments this, he says, and I'm quoting him, the Messiah's love gives me new energy. It urges me on. It impels me forward. That's what all love does. It constrains us, forces us to do things. My faith in his promises give me great hope, which sustains me through the difficulties of life. However, it is his love that has grabbed my life and compels me to my mission to take the love of Christ to the poor. It's also that love that constrains me from spending my life and my resources on other endeavors. I want you to pay attention to this last point. Paul is not saying that it was his love for Christ that compelled or constrained him to spend his life communicating the gospel. If you look at the text, it clearly says he was saying it was the love of Christ that compelled him. As a Christ follower, one of the greatest discoveries that you will ever make is this. Jesus is not about what we should do for him as much as he is about what we could become when we surrender and allow his Holy Spirit of love to control us. The key is not so much commitment as it is surrender. Remember the Greek word uh, plero from Ephesians 5.18? It's in the passive voice. The subject, you and me, is being acted upon by the Holy Spirit. Remember that commitment means more determined action on my part. More of my effort. I don't know about you, but I've had enough of that. I don't want more oughts in my life. My question today is not, are you committed? My question is, are you like Paul, compelled by God's love? There's a great little poem that you maybe learned years ago in Sunday school. I've had it written in the front of my Bibles for years. It goes like this, only one life, it soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I know many of you have known that since you were kids. Well, a few years ago, several years ago, I figured out, you know, that's not good theology. And I changed it. This is what it says now in my Bible. Only one life, it soon will be passed. Only what's done with Christ will last. One little preposition, but all the difference in the world. Really, I mean, ask yourself, does the creator of everything need us to do anything for him? He wants us with him. From the earliest days of creation, the earliest record in the scripture it was about a relationship with the good, good Father 
who wants us to be with him. And then sin separated and ruined that fellowship. He calls us and he redeems us and he sanctifies us and he empowers us and he energizes us so that we might participate with him in his great plans. Most of which we don't even, we can't imagine. The scripture says that what's waiting for us is beyond our imagination. And he invites us to do it with him. A year or two ago, a good friend of mine, John Maxwell, many of you are familiar with him. He's the author, um, great Christian leader, a lot of books about Christian leadership. I was at his home in, uh, in Florida. And he said, Terry, I wanted to know if you would do something for our family. Every year they get together and they have a whole week together with the family. And he wanted to go to Washington, D.C. And he wanted his children and grandchildren to go around and see the historical sites and understand some of the Christian heritage, the Christian perspective. And, um, and he knew that I, I love to do that. And I said, well, John, sure, I'd be glad to do that for you. And then he said, no, Terry, you don't understand. I don't want you to do it for me. He said, I want you and Daniil to do it with us. I want you to spend the week with us. We're going to stay in a really nice hotel. We stayed in the Intercontinental Hotel, or not the Intercontinental, the Ritz-Carlton. Um, and... Uh, we're going to eat together all the meals and we're going to travel together and I want you to do this with us. Now, I would have been glad to do that for him. When he first asked me, I thought, well, I'm going to go down to Washington, D.C. and I'm going to take a week of my vacation time and I'm going to do this for John and his family. I was glad to do that. You're glad to do things for Jesus. You discover what he's done for you and his love. And, and you know, I, well, I'll do that for the Lord. I'll do that for the Lord. Well, I think that's wonderful. But I don't think it can begin to compare with the experience of doing it with him. Of actually, you know, just let that rest on your soul for a moment. That the God of creation invites you and me to be with him. And to do whatever it is we do concerning his great plans for this entire universe. To do it with him. That's what life in the spirit, that's what the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that's what surrender and inviting the Holy Spirit to fill your life, take control of your life will do the difference that it will make. Because you see, love really does change everything. But it's not your love that you gotta somehow, I gotta love more. No, no, no. Get out of God's way. Allow the Holy Spirit to come in and fill you with God's love. And watch what happens. You'll be absolutely amazed and thrilled and blessed at where he takes you and what he does and what you'll be part of.